The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for March 15th, 2018, the Rex Rex edition. I wished we had Stormy Daniels because I was like, we could have Rex Rex XX Hex, <laughs> but we're not going to do it. You saw best Rex we ever had. I did. No, yeah. worst Rex. Worst, worst Rex, Rex I ever yeah. had. The New York Post headline. That was a great headline. That uh, is Ruth Marcus of the Washington Post sitting in this week for Emily Bazelon. Hello, Ruth. I'm doing my Emily Bazelon non-imitation. Hello, hello. Nicely done. <laughs> I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. And Ruth is with me in Washington, but John Dickerson of CBS's This Morning, or CBS This Morning. <laughs> I still don't know if there's an apostrophe. <laughs> Uh, the apostrophe is silent. The, the apostrophe is silent. Yes. Mm. Hello, John Dickerson. Uh, hello, David. On this week's Gabfest, this, I would say, and I, I will I will appeal to both of you, this was one of the newsiest weeks I can remember that didn't have something like absolutely catastrophic in it, but it, just unbelievable amounts of news, unbelievable variety of stories. So we're not going to be able to get to all the mm. incredible things that are happening, to Theranos, to Toys R Us. Toys R Us is closing. It's to so the House sad. Russia investigation, to North Korea. We're not going to get to North Korea. There's all kinds. I'm sure, John, pick your favorite story we're not getting to. It's incredible. Well, you know, you did a, a pretty good job there between Theranos and uh, I, the Toys R Us. I was, I mean, it was an iconic brand and a part of growing up. Who didn't love walking down the aisle and seeing all the things you couldn't get? But I also felt like, well, yeah, they've been in bankruptcy for a while, and the retailers are taking a pounding from online sales, and so All right. I know it's you have to mark the moment, but it wasn't like, it was, I guess I wasn't surprised by it. Yes, but know. how crazy this week is, is that we're actually not talking sure. about North Korea and the impending, we'll believe it when we see it, summit meeting. Oh, and we're not even going to talk about Britain expelling diplomats, except in Pakistan. Oh, it's, incre- is, it's insane. Right. Anyway. And on Thursday, the president signed a letter, uh, finally, after kind of dragging their heels, signed on with Germany and England in, in pushing the Russians to account for that um, for that uh, poisoning. And I love the foreign minister of Russia said, we had no motive, which is not exactly the same as saying we didn't do it. <laughs> We uh, had no motive, but we did it anyway. It's, like a, it's you know, like a cat. It's like the a cat. Election's <laughs> it's like, why the hell not? The election's coming up. Why not? All right. So what we will talk about, we will talk about the short, unhappy tenure of Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. What does his departure portend? What will his replacement, Mike Pompeo, do as Secretary of State? Then an extraordinary Democratic victory, or I guess apparent victory, but it seems pretty pretty locked at this moment, in a special House election in Pennsylvania and what that signals for the 2018 midterms. And then there is turmoil in American public education. We have teachers on strike in West Virginia or winning a strike in West Virginia, threatening to go on strike in Oklahoma, where schools are barely operating to begin with. We have students walking out everywhere. And then a secretary of education who appears to know practically nothing about her job, which makes her probably the fourth most qualified cabinet member of the Trump administration. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter and two live show announcements. We have our Portland show next week. I'm really excited. John, Emily, and I will be in Portland, Oregon on Wednesday night. That show is sold out, so no more tickets there. But there are still tickets available for our St. Louis show on May 2nd. And I'm thrilled to say we're going to have a great guest, Jason Kander, the former Secretary of State of Missouri, the Senate candidate, Democratic Senate candidate. Uh, and and political activist is going to join us for our live show at the Sheldon Concert Hall on May 2nd. There are tickets at slate.com slash live. May 2nd in St. Louis, slate.com slash live. President Trump fired Secretary of State Rex Tillerson by tweet on Tuesday. Tillerson, the former Exxon CEO, never quite achieved the Olympian heights of previous secretaries of state. He was just a, like a tad short of a Jefferson or a Lodge or I, I this is not Colin Powell. Um, this is not original, but I saw somebody suggesting that his autobiography would be um, present at the destruction. <laughs> Who wrote President at the Creation? Dean Atchison. Dean Atchison. Okay, mm, yeah. nice, nice. Uh, he was an extraordinarily ineffective secretary across in all kinds of ways. He was undermined by his boss, who was constantly mocking and stepping on him. He uh, had different views on foreign policy than his boss seemed to have. He was a 
by all accounts, a terrible organizational leader, which is sort of surprising considering he'd been CEO of one of the largest companies in the world. But he managed to get very few senior staff in place and alienated the vast bureaucracy of the State Department and, and oversaw the shedding of probably half of the senior diplomatic corps while he was there in a very short time. And State Department morale is apparently quite shattered. Tillerson will be replaced pending Senate approval by CIA Director Mike Pompeo, the former Tea Party congressman who has won President Trump's goodwill by being an America firster like him and by being around a lot and giving President Trump lots of briefings. So, Ruth, will America be better off without Tillerson? There's an argument that he didn't have authority, that he couldn't speak credibly and that he ruined the daily work of the department. And so will will the State Department be better off with somebody who shares Trump's views uh, and might be a better better organization man? So I'm reminded of the old joke. I think it's about like the Catskills Resort where the guy <laughs> is complaining um, about the food. And he says, the food is terrible and there isn't enough of it. The portions are too small. Yeah. Yeah. I'm food delivering that joke really badly. Yeah. I yeah. apologize. Hey, I always thought an old Jewish joke would be better delivered by John Dickerson <laughs> than me. Now I am ashamed. I'm going to slip off forever. But my point, which I'm now trying to recover from this humiliation, is that um, Tillerson um, what really was a terrible Secretary of State. He n didn't either, um, to use the language of corporate life that he came from, he didn't manage up very well, his primary constituent, the president, and he didn't manage down. And when you do that, you're just left getting nothing accomplished. And yet we may miss him when he's gone because the question is whether Mike Pompeo will rein in the worst excesses of his president or whether he will simply inflame them as we go into – we weren't going to get to talk about North Korea – but as we get go into this extremely delicate and potentially dangerous negotiation with North Korea over the impending summit. John, you're, you're a student of organization and of how Washington works. Do you – it, do you share Ruth's instinct that it may be dangerous to have somebody who is aligned with, with Trump rather than a pushback? Or is it good no. to have the, the Secretary of State being able to speak with authority, which Tillerson, Tillerson never was able to? Well, I have a couple of um, – I, no, I think I think that's one perfectly reasonable way of, of looking at it. I think we have a um, – it depends which play they're running. First of all, to, to, to Ruth's point, the focus on North Korea is, is important. The president is about to engage in or he has – I guess, engaged in the first step of negotiations with North Korea. Some people think he has done well up to this point, getting North Korea to want to talk, but he's botched the first round of the conversation, which is to offer himself as, a, as an interlocutor immediately. Usually that's something you use as a prize, and you get North Korea to make a bunch of concessions to get the prize of meeting with Trump. And since one of the things that they may want to work out here is a gift of prestige in exchange for taking away the missiles. The missiles are about prestige. The nuclear power, the nuclear weapon is, is about prestige to North Korea. So you want to give it something to replace that. So there's already a problem in the negotiations. So now you're changing the team. It's not just Tillerson. It's also perhaps H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor, who's leaving. The team that was in place ran on a kind of modified madman theory, which was in part that you had the president being incredibly bellicose about North Korea, and then you had somebody working the diplomacy. The people you had mostly working the diplomacy was Mattis and Tillerson, with H.R. McMaster doing his bit at the White House. The madman theory requires a Tillerson-like figure, not a, another madman, which is just shorthand for not another person you know, giving the most bellicose version of this. And this is not just in dealing with the back channels to North Korea, but it's dealing with the South Koreans and the Chinese and the Japanese and the Russians and the Germans and the Brits. You get a lot of people and you need coordinated work and you need somebody to go do the work who has an interest in it, has an interest in international organizations in a way that the Tillerson nominally did, certainly does more than the president. So, that's all a big problem, and that's just on the North Korea front. On the organizational front, this is one of the reasons why this notion that businessmen can come and waltz into government and have this supernatural power, which was in part what animated both the president's rhetoric about himself, also about Tillerson, and also people's general view who have this idea that if you've been successful in business, it can make you successful in government. 
there is a lot of evidence and the people who've studied this, like uh, Gautam Makunda at Harvard suggest, and I talked to um, Secretary Levitt, former HHS secretary, about this, is that the success you've had in the private sector can sometimes be an impediment. If you're in a certain kind of business that doesn't elevate adaptation, but elevates essentially rule following and hierarchy, you're very confused when you come into a place that has a whole new set of hierarchies, a whole new set of patterns. You try to do something radical, and then you lack the the kind of uh, sure-footedness to deal with all the, the on-the-fly challenges you've got to face. And that's just from the organizational piece. The other thing is, in terms of managing up, it's, Donald Trump is an extraordinary hard boss to work for as the busload, two busloads of former officials having left his, his employ uh, would attest. They, yes, they have to leave very quickly without their jackets, most of those busloads of officials. So, Ruth, the Times made an interesting claim this week that, that Trump's rapid movement on this as replacement of Tillerson with Pompeo reflects his comfort in the job, that actually what we see is not, I mean, so many of us, I think, look at this administration and think this is a man who doesn't know what he's doing, he's out of control, and and there's certainly plenty of evidence of that, but that there's another counter-argument, which is now he's getting comfortable, and he's like, I don't have to listen to all these people who told me I had to have a Tillerson in place, I had to have a McMaster, I can have my own people and do what I want. So there's always been a little bit of a they're not the boss of me aspect to Donald Trump's behavior. If the lawyers tell you you can't do something, that is the surest fire way to get Donald Trump to do something. And we've seen that all along, but I think it was Maggie Haberman's point, and this should be true of anybody who goes into the presidency, that he was, um, she said, uh, something along the lines of he was just scared out of his wits the first six months. And everybody grows increasingly comfortable in their job. And I think this may be, this may well be his sort of... um, He's out. He's out. You're fired. Well, I'm not saying you're fired, but I'm going to tell. I'm going to tweet that you're fired. Maybe a manifestation of that. It also may be a manifestation of the diminishment of the guardrails around him. The sort of Trump nanny state is evaporating. So Hope Hicks is gone. Rob Porter, who needed to be gone, the staff secretary who couldn't get the clearance in the end because he abused his ex-wives and possibly others, um, is gone and he helped make the process more orderly. So when you have the nannies leaving, those with childlike temperaments tend to assert themselves. John raised um, the role of Defense Secretary Jim Mattis. He and Tillerson were this sort of increasingly thin, have served as this increasingly thin blue line to contain President Trump's worst instincts when it comes to foreign policy, whether it was on the Iran deal, sometimes they weren't successful, um, for example, on Paris um, and on Korea. That just leaves Mattis, as far as I understand it and see it, home alone. Mm -hmm. And that makes me extremely nervous because that thin blue line is like a very thin thread right now. John, one of the weird and troubling phenomena of the Trump administration. So so uh, our secretary of state is out. He will be replaced by the CIA director. Um, Trump appears to be dangling the VA secretary, David Shulkin, and wants to replace him with Rick Perry, the energy secretary. He has, appears to be perhaps dangling Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, and wants to replace him with Scott Pruitt. The, his his candidates for replacement are pe- the few people who've already agreed to work for him. And the only people who are going to agree, agree to go into this administration now are people who are just venal and power hungry. There isn't a lot of appetite to serve for public service. And so the quality of people he's going to get in is going to get worse and worse, I assume, I presume. Uh, well, isn't, is there any reason that that thesis is wrong? No, I think that stands to reason. I, Gina Haspel, who, about where, whom there is some controversy because of her role in, um, in the, the uh, CIA's uh, rendition policy and torture is at least – so that, that's something that she's going to have to deal with in her um, confirmation hearings, and we can talk about that maybe down you know, in another show. But in terms of a person who has worked in an institution for a very long time, she's a 32-year veteran. People who have supported Hillary Clinton, like Mike Morell, who's the former number two at the CIA, think she is a, a qualified and credible person for the job. So to the extent that in this shifting around that we've seen, there has been an elevation of somebody who has – 
um, credentials within the bureaucracy, that's a person who is. So that would I, be the case. Now, I, I good, love it. It's like, good I'm, like news. I'm like, we're getting we the war criminals. <laughs> Torturers. Well, At least we have well, experienced torture. Now, but wait a minute. But, but, like but, I'm like, but, she'll be but, fine. That's okay. There were people, but also, but I mean, there were people elevated in the Obama administration who had association with those policies as well. So that has to do with U.S. policy and um, the history of the CIA in the war on terror, which is a problem, but it's different right. than the one that no, you identified. Sure. And I just for so sure. but so, it is but, funny. It is funny that uh, one would be but, clamoring to have the war criminal be the CIA but director. The the others that you mentioned, um, you're right. They're having to shuffle people who are already in on the team and who have no special expertise in those jobs. They're they're going into and jobs require some expertise. And if you don't have it, it requires you a fair amount of time to get your feet under you to act in a way that is expert like. And remember, the, anybody who might want to go into this White House, it's it's not just that it would be working for a difficult boss. It's working for a difficult boss who will embarrass you in public and for whom you may have to go out in public and say things where it you undermine your credibility, your values and you will end up leaving a potentially diminished person. And then when you leave, it will be fired by Twitter. The one other thing I should say about Tillerson is we don't know his ability to manage up. Um, we never know the things that didn't happen as a result of Tillerson and Madison H.R. McMaster talking the president out of doing things he wanted to do. So in in terms of there may be nothing, but I, I've been led to believe there's a fair amount that that they did to keep the president from going in certain directions. So it's really only going to be f- until the histories are written that we get a sense of his real ability to manage up, even though in public it obviously looks um, like he didn't you know, win that many fights. So I wonder how long it's going to take for those histories to be written, because Donald Trump um, throughout his career has managed to keep a lot of his bad behavior under wraps by having his ex-employees and his ex-wives sign non-disclosure and confidentiality agreements, and we don't even need to talk about Stormy Daniels in this context. But these government officials haven't signed non-disclosure agreements. They couldn't be required to sign non-disclosure agreements. And then he did this, I thought, really extraordinary thing of death by Twitter with Tillerson. And I understand that he really enjoys humiliating people, and that was deliberate, but it didn't seem to me to be very smart, given that we now have Tillerson and any number of others who have Steve Bannon, whoever else, who have stories to tell about this president and who you would think that the president, absent the nondisclosure agreement, might have handled in a more gingerly way to try to at least secure some degree of loyalty. And I'm curious, John or David, if you have any instinct about why the president chose then to proceed the way he did with Tillerson. Well, I don't think he's able to fire people in person. Actually, I think he's congenitally unable. He's a coward in that way. That may be true, but that just explains why he didn't do it in person. He doesn't doesn't explain why he didn't have Kelly call and say, hey, you're gone. Here's the deal. Um, Why he did it by Twitter, why he didn't call him for another three hours. Just he did it in a way calculated to impose maximum humiliation on Tillerson. And you could see that in Tillerson's face when he went to address the State Department. In which he didn't mention the president and didn't thank the president. Funny how that happens. Yeah. I mean, but I, Ruth, that's a really, really interesting point, especially on the question of John Kelly. You know, your chief of staff and your boss, the president wants to do something that, you know, hurts his his interest. Now, having the president look like um, he is treating his former secretary of state this way on the eve of, of this important North Korea moment is not good for the presidency. It's not good for his image. And his John, and John Kelly's job is to go and make sure stuff like that doesn't happen. So either A, he didn't have the instinct to do this, or he did, and the president wouldn't let him. I want to close this by just making a policy point, which is that one of the problems that I think we have um, – there's a there's a uh, a deep philosophical problem with American foreign policy right now, which is that both schools of thought are are incomplete or going to fail. So there's an America first school of thought, which is basically what Pompeo and Trump subscribe to, which is sort of like screw international institutions. We're going to you know pursue our selfish best interests at every particular moment, and even if that undermines allies, even if that 
undercuts things that we've done, even if it undergirds the uh, undercuts the the network of trade and other kinds of relationships we've built up over decades, but is morally very satisfying and is emotionally satisfying because it allows you to say we're doing what we want. And then there's an America engaged view, which is the kind of consensus establishment foreign policy, uh, which is to work through international institutions, work with allies, don't cowboy around, um, hmm. abide by international agreements that you make. And neither of them works that well anymore. Or, well, sir, the American gauge model doesn't work that well anymore if you're in America because we're just relatively weaker than we were 40 years ago and we have less ability to push around these institutions and get the deals that we want. And because China is pursuing a, a similar, China is, is creating its own web uh, in Asia and throughout the uh, Asia and even Africa. into Europe and Africa. And so our belief that we can have an America engage whereby we get to push these institutions to do more or less what we would like them to do no longer holds. So we're faced with either the prospect of sort of saying, well, we're going to work with these institutions and just be relatively weaker than we were, which is one, which is what I would choose to do and sort of what Obama chose to do and what Tillerson more or less was choosing to do. Or we can say we're going to screw them and go alone. And that creates its whole new set of problems. But both of them are suboptimal because America is a relatively weaker nation in the world and we just won't acknowledge it. Good point. All right. Before we leave here, Ruth, do you think uh, there are other changes to come in this administration that, that are similar to this? Or Well, it, it's pretty seismic when you shift secretaries of state, but it's very clear that we're getting ready to engage in the sort of Trump administration musical chairs. And I just hope they play the musical chairs on the Ben Carson $31,000 dining set. So at least people have good things to sit on. And you, you talked about- um, When they show them to the door, it will be to the, the $141,000 door. <laughs> exactly, the zinky door. Yeah. This just goes to, you asked about who would go into this administration. The problem with that Prem that question was that the premise was that we had the A-team at the start. And I think this just explosion of stories about Carson, about Zinke, that um, we're going to get to DeVos and her disastrous interview and all these people who can't seem to engage in the sort of basic common sense behavior of a government official um, just suggests that as we lose some people who were adequate to marginal and shift everybody else around, um, we could be in for a world of trouble. Can I ask just a question of you, Ruth? I have my own view and answer to this, but I'm interested in your thoughts, which is um, clearly this is chaotic. It's obviously like no White House we've ever seen before. There have been purges. Jimmy Carter purged his cabinet at one point, but it was a single kind of unitary moment. This has been a purge that's been going on almost as soon as the president came into office. The number and kinds of people has been extraordinary who've been uh, fired, shown out, shown the door, um, embarrassed on their way out and so forth. So why does that really matter? Uh, you know, we're not engaged in any, you know, new conflicts. The president got his tax cut passed. People may not agree with it, but he got something passed that his entire party is all all in favor of. He's slashing regulations, which is something Republicans have been trying to do for years. He's doing better at that than than previous Republican presidents have done. So what's the problem with all of this other than it's dramatic and is not decorous? So um, good question. Two answers. Um, one is something that you suggested earlier. It matters because if you want to be effective in your job, you have to have been doing the actually qualified to do it. But also, even if you're qualified to do it, having been doing it for having done it for a while, everybody learns on the job. If you're there for seven months or eight months or a year and two months, it's not long enough to really effectively get anything done. Um, you, po you point to the things that the Trump administration has managed to do um, with a really um, A team in place. Um, it should have been able to do a lot more given the um, total control of the branches of government. Uh, some of us who disagree with its priorities should actually breathe a sigh of relief about that. Um, the second reason that it matters, though, is having the B team in place and having not people in place. In fact, interestingly, the president's been tweeting over the last couple of days about how Chuck Schumer and Democrats are blocking his nominees. But as far as I can tell, the vast bulk of the blame for the home alone government that we have with uh, especially like look at the people on Korea and the absence of an ambassador, the absence of a senior person at the State Department responsible for this. Um, the government and the absence of people in the government and the wrong inexperienced people in the government, 
don't seriously matter until they really matter, which is when you have a potential crisis. And blessedly for all of us, Donald Trump hasn't really experienced that, whether it's on a foreign policy issue or on a financial, right. economic. Yep. So, so right. that's that's where I get really nervous. And as much as I don't want him to be able to impose some of the changes that he wants to impose, really think that it's important to have a functional government. <laughs> you know, and, uh, speaking of Home Alone, the Donald Trump was in Home Alone too. Did you know that? I, he has a cameo. That's a really good point. It right. all comes together. One of my kids told me that. Hey, Slate Plus members, you lucky dogs. You get an extra segment from this and other Slate podcasts every week for being a Slate Plus member. This week, we are going to talk about Stephen Hawking. We're not going to talk about Stephen Hawking, but we're going to honor his spirit. We're going to talk about our own personal black holes, what sucks us in and does not let us go and makes us disappear. We'll also talk about our own time travel fantasies. What's that my was... time travel? What's the time travel? Was this on the test? No, I was not going to be on the I, test. I, I, it's not I, on the I, test. I, just, I know. I knew you. I could see that in your face. <laughs> Emily wouldn't. Emily wouldn't react that way. <laughs> Emily would roll with it. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Leave that in, Jocelyn. <laughs> this episode of the Gapfest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Connor Lamb, a lawyer and veteran and a conservative Democrat, appears to have edged Republican Rick Saccone. Is that how you pronounce his name, Saccone? Mm -hmm. I've never yeah. heard it. I've just read it. Saccone, to win the special election for a House seat in southwestern Pennsylvania. The election was kind of crazy. Um, there was a huge amount of attention focused on a district that is going to vanish in a few months, but it became a symbol for the state of the Republican and Democratic Party, and it, this, this district had a kind of bellwether quality to it. It was a district that Donald Trump had won by 20 points. Mitt Romney had won by 17 points. Democrats had not even run a candidate for Congress in the last two elections there. Conservative groups poured an enormous amount of money, outside money, into the district to try to win the seat for Saccone, uh, although Lamb did outraise Saccone on direct spending. Um, but Lamb won by just a handful of votes. Remarkably, the efforts that the conservative groups made to tie Lamb to Nancy Pelosi and to try to to use the tax cut bill to make the case for their candidate and to bring Trump in to actually speak on behalf of Zacone, they all did not work. John, there's a much brooded about fact that there are 118 districts where Trump had a narrower margin than he did in Pennsylvania 18. Yeah. Democrats only need to win 23 districts, 23 House seats to take control of the House. Could Democrats actually end up winning 100 seats from Republicans? I mean, is that that scale wave coming? Well, I don't. I think the, dif the difference is Saccone was not an incumbent, and there are there are districts where you have incumbents, and so the the power of incumbency might help. But, um, you know, what I fix fixate on here is that what we've seen in in all the special elections, even the ones in which the Democrats lost, what we've seen is a constant and consistent improvement in democratic performance that's well over what the the district traditionally uh produces and so that is a wave that is coming 
There are also other pieces of evidence that waves are coming. There's there's uh, the generic ballot that shows a favorability for the Democrats over the Republicans. At the center of this is 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 that the Democrats have a constant energizing mechanism in the president, and he energizes them in two ways. One, everything he does every day. Two, because there is this feeling among core Democratic supporters that there is a kind of impotence. Nothing can be done to stop this president. And there's only one way that these Democratic voters who feel this sense of impotence can fight back, and that is through the electoral process. And we've seen it time and again play out. The normal break to that would be Republicans running on one of a couple of things. One, the success of the tax cut and its ability to get passed a longtime promise Republicans have offered to their voters and that they have now kept. The second being uh, that the economy is doing well. Uh, And the third being, I know I said there were only two, but the third being that Nancy Pelosi is a a person who will be in control and she is a, a boogeyman or a boogeywoman. And so don't turn out. Well, that didn't work in this race in a district that Trump won by 20 points, and it's it looks like it's not working in, in other areas. So, Ruth, there's a school of thought which says that uh, voters are much more animated by voting against the party they disfavor than voting for their party. And therefore, you, uh, you know, if you really hate a Trump, or really hate a Republicans, you're more likely to vote than if you really are keen on a, your Democratic candidate. One conclusion you could draw from that is it's good to nominate, therefore, uh, candidates who won't irritate people on the other side. So you should nominate your most moderate candidate rather than your most progressive candidate. And Lamb fits that model. Lamb is a very conservative Democrat. He's anti-abortion. He's pro-gun. He was handpicked by party leaders. He's not one of these progressive types, you know, re- resistance types. He's a rep- The president told us he's a Republican, really. Um, right. He's a Republican. <laughs> so what's going to happen uh, Incorrect, but, by the way. Okay. <laughs> what is going to happen when uh, we have this wave of quite progressive Democratic candidates? There are going to be districts where you it makes sense for the party to nominate somebody on the left who is going to be able to animate progressives. But honestly, those are not going to be the districts where you're going to be able to tip out a Republican incumbent. For the most part, you're going to need to nominate people who are conservative, moderate enough to be able to attract those Republican suburban women and the other swingish voters who have elected Republican members of Congress all along and just might be disgusted enough by Donald Trump and everything else going on this year that they're willing to make the change. And so the John laid out three arguments that the Republicans have. The Pelosi argument doesn't seem very powerful to me. The tax cut argument has not proved its value to Republicans. Look, it was not popular when it was passed, and it's not getting very much more popular. So that kind of leaves Republicans with the economy. And that's always a good argument. But this is uh, the most place, the most common place where people vote against the other guy as opposed to for their side is in an off-year election. So that just helps build the wave. John, with this much of a wave coming, what what should Republicans do? Should they should they should they bother to fight it? I mean, should they attempt to fight it or should they just spend the next six months just passing a bunch of stuff that's that's going to be favorable to their voters and just prepare themselves to to lose the house it's such a great it's such a fascinating question or a fun question to to ruminate on if you're going to fight it um you need money and so you got to go out there and fundraise and so you got to be back in the district and doing all that so you can't be in washington um uh trying to pass legislation and by the way it's really hard to pass legislation because you're all you know, you got people worried about being in primary races. You've got people in districts where the president is an anvil around their ankle. And so, um, you know, they're going to try and do things that um, disconnect themselves from the president. They'll do that through voting. So it's not like they could come and like lickety split, pass a bunch of legislation. I also thought it was interesting that Lamb ran against Paul Ryan saying that he was going to gut Medicare and Social Security. You know, so that's a non-Donald Trump argument that seemed, based on some of the early analysis I saw, seemed to have some purchase, which means the more that activity there is in Washington, the more he can point to Washington. The Republicans have no choice. You can't run away from a president. You just, you can't do it. You just, it doesn't work. I, I don't really know what they can do. I mean, I think the the, the best, because it's also very hard to focus in this environment. You know, 
one of the goals that a that an opposition party like the Democrats will try to do is nationalize the election. And again, I mentioned this is a kind of a third element to the fact that Donald Trump is the best turnout mechanism for Democrats. He is a constant attention grabber. And in some districts, that'll be great. But the transference between the president and the, the person he would be endorsing, whether it's Saccone or Roy Moore, that transitive property has not been demonstrated. And, you know, there's a known unknown here. Um, before the election, which is where the Russia story is going and what yeah. Mueller is going to come up with before the election. We don't know. But but a, the, the suggestion, the, the answer is probably greater than zero. We will hear from Mueller in some way before the election again. Do you think there's any risk, Ruth, of Democrats overplaying this? And, and causing, <laughs> yes. And causing, Is there any risk of Democrats blowing it? And causing By the way, a never. Blowback. Can I, speaking of which, Ruth, uh, please give me your thoughts on Hillary Clinton's remarks in India. Oh, sigh. I get in trouble when I say this because people keep calling me a Hillary hater. I'm anything but a Hillary hater, but I'm a Hillary sire, actually. S i g h e r. I just don't think. She's helping herself or helping her party with this constant, I'm going to use a bad word here, whiny sounding relitigation of the results. It would be better not to continue to do that, both for her own reputation and for the future of her party. That's my view. Uh, John, it's not fair to just ask the girl. So what did you think about Hillary Clinton's comments? I think as a, I think you're, I think you're, what you say is particularly right for her party and the ideas she believes in. I think also when the most identifiable gaffe of the campaign was to lump people into groups, <laughs> to lump white women into a group who behaved in a way, her argument was that white women didn't vote for him because of their, I couldn't even quite figure it out, something about their husbands. Under their, um, under their husband's thumbs. They were under their husband's thumbs. I don't think that you, I don't think you want to speak about women and their behavior <laughs> Don't, um, don't go there, David Plotz. Yeah. <laughs> Giving you some free you. advice here. Oh, I'm just playing. I don't think you want to speak about women in bulk like that. Um, and so I think that's uh, not good and under any circumstances, and it's not good for the for the party in particular as Republicans are searching around in the, in the tool drawer to f- try to find something that will be useful, anything that gives them a chance to um, hold up an image of elite Democratic luminaries kind of looking down their noses at a certain class of, of America, I think is not to the, to, it's not a good thing for I mean, them. I mean, just to play fair both sides here. I mean, Trump said an outrageous thing about women where he said 52% of women voted for me. Well, all was, the only yeah. women who count, which, which are the was, white and ones. Just yeah. talking right. about white women. Po- but it is possible in this world of uh, this, this multi-flavored world for Donald Trump to say things that are totally wrong and, uh, and offensive to women and, for Hillary Clinton oh, sure. to do the same thing. I, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not attempting to defend. I didn't pay any attention to what Hillary said, and I trust both of you on it. I'm just saying that I would it just note, it yeah. should be noted that Trump said this. Sure, sure. All right. Yeah. We've um, moved far away from Pennsylvania 15, although oh, 18, 18 to India, so we're going to But wait, but there is, one, there is one 15-related okay. point about Pennsylvania 18, which I will make quickly, is the fact that Connor Lamb ran an ad in which he was I believe it was an AR-15 in the ad, but anyway, it was a, uh, a semi-automatic rifle, and it said he still loves to shoot. Gives you some indication of the difficulty with passing any kind of gun control legislation or talking about it even in a year where Democrats are trying to do well in districts like the one that Lamb looks like he won in. It's just, you know, there's a tension between uh, all the activism and the students that that were that Democrats were celebrating this week as they walked out from school and the candidates who are having to run in, in environments that are um, are not receptive to that kind of uh, message about limiting gun rights. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. It is no surprise that public education has become a contentious issue in the age of Trump. There's profound conservative skepticism about the federal 
federal role in public education. Uh, there are austerity policies in a lot of states that have limited teacher pay across the country, but especially in red states. There is a class of rich, mostly right-leaning philanthropists who have been galvanized by the idea and the reality of school choice and charter schools. These facts, uh, there's a rebellion against, um, what's the uh, the national, uh, not the, it wasn't a national curriculum, what's it called? I've not talked, Common Core. <laughs> All of these combined to make it a very fertile area for both conservative and liberal action. We have seen lots of public school drama in recent weeks. West Virginia teachers struck for nine days and won the raise that they sought from the Republican-controlled state government. Oklahoma teachers are threatening their own strike on April 2nd, also seeking a pay raise. I mean, in a state, Oklahoma, where I think 15% of schools now only meet four days a week because they don't have the money to meet five yeah. days a week, which is incredible. Second lowest pay in the country. Um, and Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, the charter school and school choice activist elevated to the cabinet and whose experience in public education seems to have been limited to watching Friday Night Lights, perhaps, is under fire for a very awkward interview she did with some of John's colleagues at CBS's 60 Minutes. Ruth, what was so bad about that interview? <laughs> what was bad about the interview was the decision to do it. Actually, you just watched it and you thought, what were they thinking when what they being her media advisors and PR team? In wow, I would just push back as a as a human being. I'm like any time a cabinet official in this administration speaks to a non Fox outlet, like in a public forum, I am happy about it. So well, it's bad. Right, maybe no, I'm, but no, but but it's I'm, good for the public well, for that. Sure, it's good. Transparency yeah, but, is good yeah. for the public. Right. Exposing Betsy DeVos's capabilities, such as they are, are, is good for the public. I'm just saying, as a PR matter, what was the education department and the administration well, I'm thinking when substantively they this what was bad thing. about it? So what right, was well, bad about it was that she displayed a pretty fundamental lack of understanding of not just um, some of the complicated areas that her department is involved in, but some of the core beliefs that have animated her involvement in public education, to wit, the impact of charter schools on the performance of public schools who lose money as a result of having uh, students drained away from them on charter schools. She wasn't able to answer really basic questions. And I have to um, indulge myself here by reading uh, a, a couple sentences from a parody that my Washington Post colleague, Alexandra Petri, wrote about the interview. And she says, Leslie Stahl, have you ever seen a school? Betsy DeVos, a school I have? Well, I hesitate to say a school. We, of course, know a school is not a building, nor is it a bus, unless it's a bus. I'm pretty sure it's not a bus, although one can certainly learn on a bus. And it it was not, that is parody, but not that far afield from the way the Secretary of Education actually sounded. The big critique of the... Trump administration and these regulations that they're unwinding and the policies they're putting in place at all these different agencies is that they are animated by a set of beliefs that are basically taken on faith. That there's – it's one thing to have a, a, a rigorously investigated point of view that is the opposite from the point of view of the of the bureaucracy in whatever agency you're in or or the ideas of the previous administration. If you have a set of theories that you've examined and tested and come to a different conclusion – but the what was interesting I thought about the interview was that there was also a lack of curiosity about the about the educational process that was demonstrated. And so the lack of curiosity plus the unfamiliarity with the with the core ideas animating Betsy DeVos in the past suggested a lot of proof for this critique of the broader critique of the of the Trump administration, which is that they're just doing a lot of things um based on a kind of a more uh, faith-based approach than any kind of rigorous or even consistent reason behind them. I am no education expert, and all you um, GabFest listeners, you know, sharpen your knives right now because I'm probably about to say something which is wrong and stupid. But here's what I would say. Like, there are parts of DeVos's agenda which I find deeply concerning. I think the fact that she's doing a lot of business with shysters and con men that the the uh, her policies on higher education appear to be run by the for-profit 
colleges rather than by all the other colleges, which are the vast majority in the United States. And I hate the rollbacks on civil rights that she's pursuing. And I agree there's a kind of faith-based is the right word on charters and school choice, which is it's faith-based. On the other hand, we're not going to have a national curriculum in this country. It just is not how we work. We have a bunch of states, state education is a state level activity. So the federal role in education is limited. And the idea that we, you know, we've elected somebody in President Trump who wants to pursue this kind of agenda, it's not going to massively shift everything that's happening in the country. It's going to tinker with things on the edges. It's going to, there's going to be more charters, there's going to be more school choice, and that's going to have, you know, an effect which may be baleful, it may not be baleful. But I don't think, it seems to me a pretty small set of experiments. And and to me, DeVos is not even in like the top five bad Trump cabinet members. If you compare the effect of what she can do to what's happening at the EPA or what Steve Mnuchin does or uh, what the Secretary of Interior can do, this seems to me pretty small beer and... And I think the reason that Democrats are so animated at it is that teachers are a huge constituency in the Democratic Party. And that really makes a big difference. But isn't that just like saying that Ben Carson can't cause that much damage at HUD because he can just, um, re, you know, rewrite the mission statement and make and make it harder for homeless people to find housing and take anti-discrimination uh, efforts out of the department's mission, but because he can't bring down the economy or bring us into war, it's not that big a deal. I mean, sort of, there, yeah, there's a I think, lot I mean, there's of- a little bit of, There's a little bit of that, which I'm saying, but it's also because there's fundamentally public education in this country is a state level activity. And so what the federal government does is on the margins. And so the fact that she has a, she has an ideology, a faith-based ideology about school choice and charters but this, is it, you know, changes the emphasis of what the department does, but it doesn't, it's not going to fundamentally change how students are educated in most schools in the country. But there's a lot of federal funding that goes to impact yeah. the way those local schools and state systems operate. And, you know, we're having this national discussion about arming teachers. That is now a national level discussion. So who it matters who is the secretary of education. I'm not and saying it doesn't matter. I'm just saying it doesn't matter that much. Well, compared to what? It doesn't matter compared to a defense secretary who's not competent, which we do have a defense secretary who's right. competent, or a treasury secretary. Or an interior secretary or an yeah. EPA secretary. Where they, they, okay. they, they're, they're like permanent damage that can be done. This is going to be tinkering at the edges. And actually, like frankly, the certain amount of experimentation in this is fine. D.C. is a city, which I live in, which has had this huge charter school explosion, which I think has generally been good for the city. Now I don't I don't have the numbers in front of me, but like certainly the attention and effort in public education has have been really interesting in the city as a as a longtime resident. I feel that. And so I'm I guess I have some tolerance for the idea that this is a place you can experiment. I would agree with that. And um but I think the question is experiment and then but but if the experiments are based on this kind of faith and also that's not so because under your thinking, David, you do an experiment, you study the results, you figure out if they are replicable, and then you replicate them. Uh, you replicate yeah. the good parts and do away sure. with the bad. This the sense yes. of rigor yes. was not on yes. the display. No. <laughs> faith, no faith is right, and I and one of the things I loathe, and I don't think DeVos demonstrates this, but certainly a lot of her allies do, is this language of meanness towards directed towards public schools and public school teachers. The covet calling people, schools government schools is this yeah. this you know, vicious slander that I find really unpleasant. Anyway. I want to say um, one mild word in defense of Secretary DeVos, and then I'll go on to criticize her. So don't, nobody panic. Uh, I, I've been very interested and quasi supportive of the education department's efforts to revisit the question of whether we've got the balance right on sexual assault and sexual harassment and mm -hmm. the Title IX regulations, whether they've gone tip too far and diminished the due process rights of the accused students. Slate yeah. colleague Emily Yaffe has, former Slate colleague Emily Yaffe, has written very brilliantly about this. So, you know, I give DeVos uh, a cheer and a half, maybe two cheers for raising this. But then this is, and this was an illustration of how problematic the interview was, and this got a lot less attention than her comments about charters and failing schools. 
She is asked, are you in any way suggesting that the number of false accusations are as high as the number of actual rapes or assaults? There's one obvious answer to this question, which is, no, I am not. But that still doesn't mean that we don't need to be worried about people being falsely accused. That's my answer. This is the actual DeVos answer. Well, one sexual assault is too many and one falsely accused individual is one too many. Well, that's true, but totally inadequate, totally tone deaf, and um, totally illustrative of why she should not be in this job and why she was only the first, I think, cabinet secretary to have been confirmed by uh, having the vice president cast the tie vote, break the tie vote. One wow. going to... Go ahead, Go ahead David. No, no, I was just, I was in just in going to indignantly, you know, make uh, mouth noises that were disagreeing <laughs> with Ruth, but I didn't have any sentences <laughs> or even words to Out apply the there. Way, buddy. Blah, just, uh. <laughs> well, Go ahead, John. Uh, well, no, I think on your original point about West Virginia and Oklahoma, on the show this week, we talked to two teachers, and uh, one was the teacher of the year for Oklahoma, and the other was teacher of the year for the whole country. And when you talk to them about Did the teacher of the, of the year for the whole country seem a lot better than the teacher of the year for Oklahoma? <laughs> when you talk about and by the way, the teacher from Oklahoma moved to Texas uh, in part because of the pay issues in Oklahoma. Um, when you when you talk to them about all that has been put on their plate additionally, you know, it's not just teaching the students anymore. Obviously, there is the. The idea out there that there might be some places where the, there would be armed teachers, which adds a whole new uh, element. But then there are the others, which is teachers are now supposed to play a, a role as kind of um, uh, first responders in looking at any kids who might have issues, acute sensitivity and knowing just when to jump in so that none of those those kids can, you know, some day later get a gun. There has all been the increase in testing that has occurred in, in all, all these different school districts. Um, and then there's just the general, you know, cultural interruption into the day that teachers now have to pay, deal with more, all of which is not uh, based on their core job, which is to, to teach kids information. So that I guess the point here is not only has the pay not kept up, but the, 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 co- the load that is on them uh, is significantly more. And obviously, since they, you know, in these fights in West Virginia and Oklahoma and even in this national interview to some smaller de- degree – the message being sent is, is as you said, David, calling them government schools, is that the teachers are not valued. And that sends a message to the kids, ultimately, about these people that we're supposed to, that we're putting all the societal pressure on to help shape more than just the brains of our children, but also uh, to, to make them be good people. All right. Last uh, question quickly on this, because I do want to talk about Oklahoma and West Virginia. Ruth, uh, it was interesting, I, fa- I think, uh, heartening is for especially for those of folks who love public schools and public school teachers that in West Virginia the strike ended with a victory by the teachers union despite the fact this was a completely republican controlled legislature and and governor's office and in Oklahoma it looks like the teachers are going to have a lot of public support as well um why do you think why do you think they were able to win in West Virginia I I think that there is public support for teachers. People understand that teachers are dramatically underpaid based um, in comparison to the function they serve to society. I think that teachers unions can remain powerful even in Republican strongholds. And the teachers had a moral claim to more money. And even in this day and age, moral claims make some impact. Yeah, I agree. I also, I would one sort of addendum to that that I would add is that I think there's such a longing. There's so many institutions that are not working well in this country. And I think the idea for Americans at public schools, which are so important, which all of us are, you know, most Americans spend the first third of their life at, uh, the idea that those would be struggling and breaking the way that we see government breaking, the way uh, that we sometimes see healthcare breaking, that is disturbing to people. And I don't I don't think people want to live in a society where the public schools don't work at all. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're on the picket lines, Ruth, and having a beer on the picket line, probably not allowed <laughs> to have a beer on the picket line. That's probably very discouraged, probably not encouraged to drink. I'm in, I'm in management too, so I'm not a union member. Well, Ruth, if you were on the picket line or if visiting I... a picket line, 
with a nice I would be frosty one in hand. Cupcakes to the people on the what picket line you or something. To the picketers about. I, I am really interested in um, the current issue of the National Geographic, which is about. That's my chatter. Go ahead. Well, we. No, bring it. Will... I have a second one. Go ahead. I have another one. No, but... you go okay. ahead. Go ahead. Um, well, w- which is about race, and I'm interested in it on a number of different levels. One is the editor's note by Susan Goldberg, the editor in chief, which just talks about the abysmal un. You just can't. I'm going to use the word whitewash, terrible word here. You can't whitewash the racist history of National Geographic and the way it wrote about, and they literally used this term, savages. The quote was, the caption was, it's a photo from Aboriginal men. It said, quote, South Australian blackfellows, blackfellows being one word, these savages rank lowest in intelligence of all human beings. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So they own that, and I thought that was really interesting because it happens to come in the same week that we saw, or maybe it was last week, this remarkable um, um, project by the New York Times, which is to try to fix its past, not racist, though that may be, um, but sexist in terms of filling in the obituaries of women who deserved obituaries and in the New York Times that didn't get them and they're getting them now. So I thought it was interesting to see that news organizations can find their own way to make reparations. Um, And then I thought it was really fascinating that simultaneously this issue is, and it's a race is a fascinating, compelling, constant topic. And it, this issue includes stories that talk about how race simply is not a scientific concept at all. And then it also tells us that race is totally central to various ways in which we understand the world. And it has this absolutely striking image that I'm looking at right now on the cover of Twin Sisters, um, black and white. These twin sisters make us rethink everything we know about race. One looks white, one looks black. They're fraternal twins. They, in a nutshell, are kind of the new normal of America and the world. And yet race is still front and center in the way we deal with so much. Yeah. I just want to huzzah Susan Goldberg and the historian, UVA historian, John Edwin Mason, who she commissioned to study National Geographic's racist history. And which actually, the other interesting aspect I thought was the notation. So so they're horribly racist toward Africans, African-Americans, most dark-skinned people. But then there's this weird um, idealization of Polynesians, of, of Pacific Islanders and the Polynesian beauties. So there's a whole collection of their photographs of Polynesian beauties who they they focus on. Right. And you can see them evolve over time. First, they write about South Africa and they write about Virginia, by the way, um, as if there is no problematic racist past or racist present. And then they begin to get a little bit more right. with the program right. in the 70s. Right. So it's right. just fascinating. Yes. John, what is your chatter? Uh, so I have kind of a double chatter. Uh, first is just this fun fact, which uh, some of our listeners may uh, already know, but Stephen Hawking, when he died, uh, this fact came out. He was born on the 300th anniversary of the death of Galileo, and he died on Albert Einstein's birthday. So for the renowned uh, physicist, there is um, some order in the universe. My other is the, to recommend a book by Catherine Price called How to Break Up With Your Phone. So I'm doing a series for CBS about um, about attention. Uh, as listeners know, this has been something I've been fascinated with for a long time, and the relationship between attention and focus, and all of the Is John digital... still talking. I just I'm just <laughs> and all, all I was of, looking at my email. <laughs> all of the digital wonder that makes our life so rich, but that obviously we need to find some balance about. And um, this is a tidy little book. It can be read in one. I don't know, uh, one Acela ride if you're on the Acela. It's a short book, but it's super tidy, well-written, and it just kind of takes you both through the the reasons uh, this has become such a problem for all of us and then also some useful solutions which are better than the, like, turn your phone to grayscale and other things that are um, frustrating and not helpful. All right, my chatter. I'll quickly append a chatter to... John's chatter from a few weeks ago. John chattered about this Tara Westover book, Educated, about this uh, the memoir of a young woman who was raised off the grid by very crazy millennialist, um, as opposed to millennial um, parents. She didn't go to school. She worked in the junkyard starting at age 10. 
it's an incredible book. I'm almost done with it. And it's just as good as John said it was. I think it's the number one bestseller. So it's deservedly so. And by the way, David's going to immediately leave this podcast and go listen to my uh, 45-minute interview uh, with Tara Westover about the book. I'm not because I want to finish the book first. I don't want any spoilers. I want to know it's there's I I don't know what's going to happen. Sure. Um, But then I will. But my real chatter is uh, about really fascinating New York Times Magazine story by Bobby Worth that's coming out this weekend. And it's about the kidnapping of a bunch of Qatari royals and Qatari nobility who were on a stupid, dumb falconry trip in Iraq. They went to the Iraq desert, which is a really stupid thing to do uh, for several weeks and to, to engage in the sport that they love, a falconry. And they were kidnapped by Iranian allied militias and they became the pawns in this insane set of deals uh, that involved the Syrian civil war, the negotiations to free them required the emptying out of four different Syrian towns, the, the, the population relocation of thousands of people, the death of hundreds of people, the theft of hundreds of millions of dollars in ransom money, and the general humiliation of Qatar, or Qatar, or however you're going to say it, um, a country that has made deals on all sides in that region and found itself trusted and and liked by nobody. It's a just a crazy story. So I recommend that. Hey, and one more thing, uh, GapFest listeners, there's an exciting job opening at Slate that I think you might be interested in. I know we have a ton of lawyers and legal folks who listen to the GabFest because they like to hear Emily and Ruth and legal wisdom from folks like that. And there's a job at Slate that might be for them, for you. Slate is looking to hire a lawyer who is also a sharp writer to write a new legal newsletter. Would you rather think and write and argue about the most interesting legal developments than to actually practice law? Would you like to have a Basilonian style career? Then maybe you should apply. Find out more at slate.com slash legal writer. That is our show for today. The Political Gap Act is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Road. You can tweet at us at Slate Gabfest and email us at gabfest at slate.com. For Ruth Marcus and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. Emily, John, and I will see some, many of you in Portland next week for our live show in Portland. And then you can still get tickets to our St. Louis live show on May 2nd, slate.com slash live.